tonight I'd like to talk about the psychic leanings of the mind. <clears throat> and I know uh, day two can be a rather difficult day. Day one, we're just getting into the room, trying to figure out how the levers of the practice work, trying to settle down enough so that we can even sit still. Day two often springs forth the leaks of all the psychic leaks that come up in terms of screams and discordant resonances and all of the different ways that we uh, hold ourselves. <clears throat> but I hope that everyone understands that this practice is to uh, bring us alive. It's not to, um, it's not to uh, stay in these tumultuous days and hours, but to go through these things, to, to develop a proper orientation so that we can go through whatever the mind is bringing up in terms of its disturbances and come through that participation, through that new alignment, through that new orientation to whatever it is that's happening, become alive, become alive. This is about aliveness. Let us never forget that. Now, <clears throat> I have to say and confess that the three of us up here are a little bit of a hoax. We're sort of placeholders. We're not the real teachers on the retreat, which really keeps us humble. The real teacher on this retreat is silence. And what we do is try to point you in that direction. Now, we're very nice because you can relate to us and you can't relate to silence. That's the problem. Or you wouldn't even need us. You could just go sit still and that would be that. But the fact is that most of us need some form so that we can sort of have a relationship that then directs us patiently to the proper, in the proper direction, which is to that silence. Now, why is it that silence would hold such a high place of esteem? Right? Because <clears throat> it's unconditioned. Right? Doesn't hold, it, it, right? it's still. And all the noise and disturbances and all the screams that we have throughout the day today have been in order to put noise between ourselves and that stillness, that silence. That's why there's so much thinking. The silence holds a threat for us. And so we think our way through that threat. And we it's a little bit like a, a moth that is both enamored by the flame, but if it gets too close, it feels like it's going to burn itself. We're enamored by silence. Some of us are very attracted to it in nature. Some of us sit for long periods of time in the proximity of silence. But few of us are willing to allow our wings to get singed because, because why? Because we can't enter it. You see, we like to kind of hover around it 
and uh, toss in some complaints. And when we sit, we very much like to be engaged in a particular activity or task, which allows us to feel very useful and maintain ourselves as we come closer and closer to this flame. But the flame is the, is the thing. That's the direction we're taking here. Let us know that. Why would silence be so devastatingly fearful? I mean, it's just stillness. And why do we fill it with such awful-sounding words like emptiness? Why not vitality? Why not aliveness? Because we can see that what we are doing today, our form and expression of liveness, isn't very alive. What's coming out of us today, all the ruckus, all the complaints, all the screams, all the difficulties, all the irritations, annoyances, that isn't really very alive to us, is it? And yet that's where we concede our aliveness within that thrashing around. That's where we concede our strength. That's where we concede our power. Meanwhile, there's this cavernous stillness that we fight desperately not to be drawn into because it do, we have to fight. It's like a black hole. And we have to keep our distance to it and we have to spin very fast not to fall into this infinite gravity of this thing. We have to work very hard not to be unconditioned. Don't you find that interesting? You see, when 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 we start seeing this in the right way, suddenly we can begin to orient what we do in our meditation in proper alignment. Okay, well, if the ends that we seek is the stillness we fear, well, what is it then that we do with noise? Do we add more noise to it? Do we complain about things? Do we add judgment? No, because that's just backing away from the stillness, from the suction of the black hole. We do nothing with it. The means we use has to be in accordance with the ends we seek. None of this is what I wanted to talk about, but I just got off on a little <laughs> rift there. But I found it interesting. I hope you <laughs> we'll go back to it in a moment, I think, maybe. We can also see that the reason that we hold on to such opinions and images and certainty within ourselves is to maintain a kind of resistance to that stillness. I mean, if we're certain, you see, there's no silence. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't a place for certainty in practice, and everything I'm saying tonight has to be in gradation. It's an evolution, and I can't give a Dharma talk that covers from one end of the continuum to the other. 
So you have to, wherever we find ourselves, have to feel completely comfortable with what I'm saying within the practice you're already doing. So certainty, let me just show you, when we start, it's very important to be certain. It's very important to have, feel that there have been others that have done this practice, that the practice has a certain structure and point to it, that it has a particular um, history and tradition of 2,500 years, so that if they could do it, I could do it. And so it, uh, it's, it allows us to assuage our self-doubt. It allows us to feel confident in what is being taught and in the direction that is being taught. And so for much of our practice, certainty is a very important tether that we need for our own stability. Okay, so that's perfectly legitimate. Now, if we move to the other end of the spectrum, certainty is a problem. Because certainty carried too far for too long begins to work against the stillness our heart so longs for. And when we're certain, it's a kind of way that we hold ourselves and abject to the truth, an, an objection to the truth. And we realize at some point that the less certain we are, the less opinionated we become, the less uh, knowledgeable the more we feel the warmth of the flame that we seek. This isn't to make us stronger as human beings. You see, we have to be very clear about what and why we're doing this. This isn't to form ourselves in studious philosophical ways. It's not to strengthen our intellect at the expense of our heart. It's to begin to develop a different understanding of the problem of our life, a different orientation to problems, and to begin to bring the right means, the right intentionality, the right view, into those problems. Now, most of us like to consider ourselves to be open. In fact, probably most people in this room would consider themselves on the political spectrum to probably be liberal. And liberals feel like they're very open. And But what they really are, and I've noticed this in myself, so believe me, is that they're open to people of like liberalism. (laughs) If you're open, then I'm open. I'm open to you if you're open. (laughs) Just a a case in point. I was um, coming in from the outdoors, uh, somewhat um, tired, having done something like change the oil in the car or something. I'm kind of um, irritated and annoyed for various reasons. So 
my wife Ellen was listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio. So I walk in there and I say, why are you listening to that nonsense? And she said, because I want to understand his point of view. So I was being liberal. (laughs) She was being open. It's interesting, you see, how we define our words. How open is open. Another uh, good example is that in hospice care, I was the director of a hospice for a number of years, and in hospice care, there is a deep value system that you take anyone who is dying, regardless of their ability to pay or their ethnic orientation or all of the different. And uh, we received an offer from a very fundamental Christian group that they wanted to partner with us. They would offer the volunteers for their congregation who were dying, and we would offer the professional services. So I thought that was certainly reasonable. So I took it to our staff, and I said, okay, so here's the proposal. What do you think? And they said, oh, no, we don't want to do that. I said, what do you mean you don't want to do that? You don't want to serve dying people because they happen to be Christian fundamentals? No, they said that when we go into the house, we've been with people from that congregation, and when we go in the house, they try to convert us. And I don't feel like having that additional stress on on my job as I go in. And I say, well, that doesn't... I'm sorry, but that doesn't fit the value system. We have to work with that. Our value system is that we are open to all, regardless of orientation, religious or otherwise. That place that we close down, that place that we refuse to cross, you see, that's what, that's our objection to stillness. Understand it as an objection to stillness. It's where openness, vast openness, is refused because of righteousness, because of fairness, because of countless different reasons that we place in front of ourselves and the stillness that we long for. I keep saying that because many of us have a deep longing in our heart that we feel, but don't know how to direct it in the right way, how to energetically direct it in the right way. And that longing is the longing for stillness, the longing for the absence of the noise we create. It's the longing for the unconditioned. Now, I... There's a kind of physical orientation that the mind has as a way of objecting to that longing and to the stillness it seeks. And I call this the leanings of the mind, but there are actually can be felt almost as physical leanings, almost a physicality of experience of how we lean into or away from an experience to keep as much obstruction between ourselves. 
And we do it deliberately. We do it deliberately. The Buddha said this was a deliberate ignorance. So the first psychic leaning, but also has a physical component, is that leaning forward, that moving forward, moving stance as a way to think ahead of this vast stillness, this uncreated. And so as long as we can keep the momentum of mind in a forward pursuit, then this cavern is covered, is nicely tiled, so we won't fall into it. And so many of us have a particular relationship to life, and as I go through these different leanings, you'll hear your particular pattern quite likely, because most of us have a character pattern to lean forward or to lean back. But all of us do both at some point. So this need to think ourselves ahead, we have to get a sense of, and believe me, I have done a study of this one in brushing my teeth. I have one of those toothbrushes that kind of pause after 30 seconds and then stop after two minutes. It's a Sonicare. I'm not advertising that, by the way. So, but, so it doesn't mean anything. Why would, it, why would I care whether I went two minutes and when it stopped or three minutes? It means absolutely nothing. Intellectually, logically, philosophically, it doesn't mean anything, right? So I'm cleaning my teeth, and I hear fear the first pause. Okay, that's 30 seconds. And then I think, oh, my God, I have to speed up in order to get my teeth done. I'm, not, I'm back a molar, you know. <laughs> this comes in. Emotionally, it comes in. Emotionally, it's felt is a kind of an urgency. And I'm thinking, this is, doesn't make any sense at all. Now, look, I'm a meditation teacher, for God's sake. If I can't brush my teeth with some degree of restraint and pause, <laughs> but emotionally, and what I'm trying to say to you, there's no logic in emotion. There's, it's deeply embedded ignorance. It's unwise emotion containing a kind of time orientation, probably beaten into me in school systems and all different ways it walks like. It doesn't matter where it came from, except I see it and that it doesn't meet current standards. I mean, there's no reason why it has to be there. I don't have to get to class. I just have to, <laughs> just have to push the button again and it starts back up. <laughs> so it's very interesting that we see that there isn't necessarily a rationale for why we move forward, why we're leaning forward. It's an emotional, it has emotional appeal. And that emotional appeal doesn't necessarily hold the standards of the current times. And it is is tremendously compelling, tremendously compelling to move quickly. The busyness of our life. If we ask what we get from it. That's the appropriate... You have to ask two questions anytime there is that kind of of reactivity. 
What are its limitations and what is its value? Its limitation is obvious. It's tense, tight, stressful, has no sense or logic in relationship to what is actually occurring, and keeps me in a kind of a ball of tightness while I'm brushing my teeth. But what's the value we get out of it? We stop the question too soon, and we revolt against the the obvious limitations. We say, okay, I'll just stop this. You can't decide to do that. You have to see what you get, what we get out of it. What we get out of it is very interesting. What we get out of moving ahead of ourselves is a sense of improvement, of self-improvement. Illogical as it may seem, we feel as if we're moving to some sort of bettered, better reality up front. And so we give the weight of our attention to where it is we're moving rather than to where it is we reside. Planning is a particular example of that movement where we think ahead of ourselves in order to have a secure, safe reality when we actually get there. And the accompanying worry that planning feeds upon is often not even seen. And that need to develop the fulfilling self ahead of ourselves. What we do in this practice is to look where we are unfulfilled. Look at where it is that we're being pushed from. Where it is that we're pushing. What is it that we're trying to get over? Rather than to use this practice to try to get over our discontent or our uneasiness or our stress, to get to a moment in which that stress doesn't happen by speeding through my brushing, I go back and look at the pain that the reaction is a symptom of. The pain itself is the disease. The busyness is the symptom. So I look at the, at the sense of stress, at the sense of... That's what I think the future will allow me. It will allow me a time in which I will not be under this duress, when I will be free of this, and contentment will therefore come if I hurry through this time, getting over this particular difficulty, and find that moment when I'm stress-free. Always understand that the sense of self denies the canyon of now, for what seems to be very logical reasons, but are really emotionally ignorant. They aren't built upon the facts or standards that are actually here. They are abstractions, ideas about ourselves, fantasies, imaginaries, a time when, a future when, And as most of us have lived through many futures when, we find that future, if it ever does arrive, to be a very temporary one at best. And so this compelling need to think our way out, to think ourselves through, it gives us something that, it gives us what I call now, after last night I went down and watched part of the NCAA basketball on a new TV they have down there, high-definition TV. So now I thought, okay, 
high definition where you see the exact details. I call this now high definition meditation. High definition meditation is meditation that we do to get over ourselves, which gives us a clear definition of ourselves as we try to get over it. It gives us a very clear delineation, a very clear outline, a very clear image of what we are now and what we want to become. And we don't like fuzzy images. We don't like normal TV. We want a clearer image of self, the better. And the more defined I am, the better. And the more I'm trying to get over myself, the more definition I have of what I'm trying to get over. So it's high-definition meditation. Are people following this language, or am I just completely okay? (laughs) Sometimes I can be a little out there in my language. All right, so... Now, so that's the first, that's the, per, the first impulse is to establish a conduit through the cavern, through the now, that allows the now not to be the vast openness that it is, but as a way to tile it so I can get over it, to get on to further definitions of myself. Do you see? And we think our way through that. We have whole patterns of thought that lead to an extrapolated future, a future from now to some other time, a better time. And we remain in control, very much in control, in that future thinking. My agenda. My agenda, you see. It's interesting, uh, oftentimes when people leave the retreat, they wonder why suddenly their lives don't remain as crisp and as exact as it was on the retreat. Well, it's very simple. When you're on retreat, you're really not doing much according to your own agenda. The bells ring, you come in, you sit, and you don't try to do anything while you're sitting. In fact, it's a, it's a week of non-doing. But when we get out there, the agenda, the need for our agenda comes back in. And we're often running with that agenda. And we've lost any sense of connectivity because connection doesn't come through running our agenda. It comes through receiving or opening to what's at hand. Not setting a pace of forward thinking. I'll tell you how subtle that space of forward thinking gets television commercials used to have a pause between the start of the commercial and the end of the program and the end of a commercial and the start of a program. There was this little blank space. And they found, by doing studies, that there was so much anxiety for people watching the TV during those blank spaces that they smoothed them over so that the commercial and television would have no break whatsoever. Give me anything close to a pause, anything close to stillness, and I get anxious. Please make it continuous noise for myself. Make it continuous. Okay, so how do we make it continuous? Forward thinking. It's continuous that way. As soon as we get there, we're forward thinking beyond that point, and on and on we leapfrog over ourselves. Now there's also... 
backward thinking. Backward thinking. The preservation of what has been. Have you noticed that one in your mind? Where you mull over the details of your life, either from the pleasure, the experience that that former experience offered us, or to try to remedy some difficulty or emotion that we might be feeling. We spend so much of our time backward, thinking back, leaning backward, leaning backward. Now, I want to mention that when I said this was a physical experience, you can feel sort of intuitively in your psyche where you're leaning backward. I remember in my opening days as um, a student, uh, one of the teachers would say, you know, don't settle back and just allow the experience to come rather than leaning forward into the experience. That was so helpful to me because I could actually feel when he mentioned that, that sense of psychically leaning into the space. So there is an accompanying tone, physical tone, to these expressions of thinking ahead or thinking behind ourselves. One student in Seattle, after I gave um, a series of talks like this, said she was in the grocery line, and she could feel, suddenly she was feeling herself suddenly gripping the chart, or the cart and sort of begrudging the line space. And she said, oh, oh, wait a minute, let me just correct that. And in the moment she took a vertical position, suddenly she was okay being in the store. So this leaning backward, how do I continue? That, how do I get it back? That's another aspect of leaning backward. How do I get this experience back? How do I regain what I had yesterday? I had a good meditation. How do I get it back? How can I... You see, that need to wallow, to be indulgent, to, to hold on, to uh, reinvest in what was. <clears throat> That's a strong tendency in most of us, in many of us. And accompanying that sense of leaning back are strong views of the experiences we've had before and where they've taken us and where we are and all the certainty that leaning back provides because what, more importantly, leaning back does for us is give us a strong sense of self-image. We know where we've been. We know what we can or cannot do. We know what holds us upright. We know our relationship to whatever might be arising because we've had similar past experiences. We know ourselves, And that knowing ourselves provides a very strong sense of self-enhancement, of self-definition again. And what does the cavern of now provide? You see? Because once we're finished leaning forward in the future or leaning back, trying to regurgitate an experience, what's left for us? And you can see why we're in a rocking mode in our meditation rather than a vertical, upright posture. The vertical, there's no tiling There's no covering here anymore. 
And if I'm not thinking myself into the future of things, or I'm not begrudging the past or indulging in the past, where am I? Where am I? And if we don't think that's a poignant question, if we don't think that's a relevant question, wait, it will show itself to be such. Because connecting, interconnectedness, occurs only in the vertical stance, which means our heart can only open when we're not leaning into the tasks of our life, tasking our way through. We love tasks. Why? Because it allows us to lean forward into what will be accomplished rather than to take a firm confidence here and now. Much of what drives our need to think ahead or behind is a deep, ingrained self-doubt in us. If we were to scratch the surface of most of our minds in this room, we would lead with a kind of self-doubt. What would come out from most of us, or many of us, would be a sense of that they have more to do. We have more to do. Now, let us say there are 60 people in the room here, and let us say that the average age is 40. Okay, so if my math is right, that's 2,400 years of life. Is there anyone who has arrived that doesn't have more to do in 2,400 years of living? Please raise your hand. And please notice that none of us up here are raising our hands. Now let us look at this. If in 2,400 years of human history we have not arrived from more to do, isn't it an opportunity, isn't it a challenge now to change the more to do to having arrived? Enough. Maybe it's enough. Maybe it's only the self-doubt that perpetuates itself, that can never find its own completion and never will because its life is at stake in not finding it. And therefore it conveniently never does. And maybe there is a different way to handle this life that allows fulfillment immediately. You see, 
Now, again, I want to bring in the whole continuum, the whole continuum. <clears throat> Some of us are far away from that confidence and practice <clears throat> nibbles at it, builds a kind of self-steadiness, allows us to come to more forbearance and steadiness. No question. No question. And it will keep doing that for years. So if we don't feel ready now, then continue. But if we feel ready now, then we have to relook at this whole question of the problem we are facing. Maybe it's just induced by thinking. Maybe we have just assumed. And maybe if I hold fast and steady as the Buddha behind me does, where he reaches down and touches the earth, confirming his confidence, confirming his place to stand where he is now, confirming his immediacy with the earth. No longer believing in mind at all. That's it, the end. No longer having the stories of our life continually perpetuate themselves in forward or backward thinking, in profound confusion of the fact, because there's an emotional ignorance contained within that that refuse to look at the truth of where we're standing, where we're sitting now. Here. So when we start looking again, at this moment of now. We see a now that's not an impoverished now, squeezed between the fast and forward-moving thoughts of the future or the backward regretting or replaying of our history and our image. We see something that opens up, that covers the space, infinitely covers the space of both of those forms of thinking and have always held those forms of thinking because those forms of thinking could have never been anywhere but now. And as we begin to expand so that we do not move with the relative truth of those thoughts, thinking ahead of ourselves, looking ahead of ourselves for a more complete moment, we're willing to come back to what it is that's driving that need for completion. We've uncoupled ourselves, uncoupled the reaction from the need to be me. And when we have seen how many, many years we have spent thinking our way into some sense of fulfillment in a way from the infinite. 
and we start realigning with the deep poles of our heart to move once more into our aliveness, to be fulfilled, alive, to be vital, to be alert, to be attentive, to be sensitive, to be heartfelt, to be caring, to be compassionate, to be loving. All those words come. We're ready to relook at this practice in a very different way. Very different way. Sobered. And yes, it may be anxiety provoking. But what are our options? Openness means being open to. Openness means not having any opinionation behind the scenes driving us to further closed downness, to further contraction. It means being open, including Rush Limbaugh. And if we have to lose our personal power and our issues of argument, which is what we have to lose, we have to lose our argument. We lose our resistance. That's what we lose. We lose our fairness. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. Now, do you want to remain righteous or or free? Righteous or free? But it's not fair. I agree. Righteous or free? What about all the unforgiveness, all those things people did to me? I understand, righteous or free. It's very simple, really. You can feel it under us as we speak. You can feel it hold the space, in the space.
righteous or free. Thank you. Can we sit quietly for a moment? So as we're sitting, let me just reinforce the fact that no one is doing anything wrong in their practice. If anything, tonight's talk was a reorientation, perhaps a realignment, perhaps just a tweaking to look at the questions that are most relevant in us. And to move with that deepest longing. And to not be afraid. Because the man behind us in 2,500 years of tradition provides the certainty that we need not be. and to have fun and let our hearts sing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.